0: Let's read Hosea chapter one, verse one. Hosea one, verse one. The word of the Lord that came unto Hosea or Hoshea, the son of Be'eri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Let me ask you all a question. How many of you know what a comfort zone is? How many of you know what a comfort zone is? It's okay, you can raise your hand. Okay, most of you know what a comfort comfort zone is. Uh, Most of us without calling it that, have some place, let's say, that we would consider a comfort zone. Whether it be a room in our house or the home itself, Uh, Maybe it's just a perfect state of contentment while doing something apart from normal work. A hobby, uh, a sporting or entertainment event, something of that nature. We might call it a comfort zone because it kind of gets us out of, you know, some stress and anxiety. In fact, I read a definition of a comfort zone. A comfort zone is, and I quote, a psychological state in which things feel familiar to a person and they are at ease and in control of their environment experiencing low levels of anxiety and stress unquote, "or" unquote. So that sounds seemingly ideal doesn't it and i'm sure that we'd hope that it's real But for us as believers in Jesus Christ, it's not a psychological state as much as it is a spiritual one. And I bring this up because as I was pondering the lives, not only of Hosea, but the lives of all the biblical prophets, whether they wrote a book or a a prophecy down, or they just proclaimed it like Elijah and Elisha and others, As I was pondering the lives of these prophets, this thought came to mind. The thought was, did the prophets have a comfort zone? Did the prophets have a comfort zone? And the only conclusion that I could come up with was that the only comfort zone that the prophets had in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation was the Lord God himself. He was their only comfort zone. I mean, let's face it, you get called to be a prophet and you go out to the people and what do you say? Thus saith the Lord. What does everybody do? Ah. They cringe because they think that because the prophet has come, the only thing he's going to say is some declaration of judgment or wrath. I mean, there were some good things, of course, that prophets said, but most people don't listen to the good things. (laughs) I mean, you know, their ears are perked up to, What's going to hit us in the, in the head? You know, what's going to hit us between the eyes? So the prophets, if they had a comfort zone at all, and some of them were married, some of them had families, that might have counted as a comfort zone, but primarily their comfort zone was God himself. And maybe when it comes right down to it, The Lord is our only true comfort zone for us as well. Case in point, the prophet Hosea. Think about this prophet just as an example. In verse 2, which we're going to get to tonight, but in verse 2, the text reads, And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife. Stop. Don't read on Go, take unto thee a wife. Just stop there. That would sound like the Lord was blessing Hosea with a domestic comfort zone. Until you read the rest. Take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. That doesn't sound too comforting to me. That sounds like a whole lot of problems already built into this particular command that God is giving Hosea. Where do you think his comfort zone is going to be now? It has to be on God himself. And we'll get to his thinking about that in just a minute. So here is something, if you need to take home with you at all about this issue of comfort zones and all, God alone is our comfort zone. You see, it rhymes and everything. I did that just for you, just so you remember. God alone is our comfort zone, (laughs) okay? We can be at ease. We can be at ease, not because we're in control, as the world says, no, we're at ease because God is in control. Okay, so that's our little lesson on comfort zones for tonight. So as we get into our study of chapter one of Hosea, let me just say that we, we did cover the preliminaries in our introduction last time. But let me just bring some th- thoughts back into mind. The time of Hosea's prophetic ministry was roughly between 760 and 710 BC, so it was eighth century. That was 8th century B.C., 760 to about 710. That's just roughly. Uh, And his messages were directed toward the northern kingdom of Israel. So that tells us that this was taking place during the time of a divided kingdom. There were two kingdoms. And anything that is divided of that sort, especially the division of God's people, is not a good thing. It's never a good thing. The mathematics of God are very clear in scripture. God adds to the church. He multiplies the blessings that he gives to his own people. And at times he subtracts blessed subtractions from the church. I'm just kidding. (laughs) But it does happen sometimes. There are times when, you know, there's people that shouldn't, you know, they've come for other reasons than to really listen and pay attention to the Lord sometimes it causes misery you pray oh God you know if this person doesn't want to cooperate they should go someplace else and you know what God subtracts them That's the way he works but the only part that's very the only part that you know when it's when it's done by God it's part of judgment The things that Jesus said about, I didn't come, but to divide. In a sense, you know, father against son, mother against daughter. You know, not that he came with that intention. He came, by his very coming as Messiah, has split homes of those who who believe and don't believe. So it isn't as he came as if he came to divide. That's not the point. But the fact of the matter is, when man divides, it always divides. For the bad, not for the good. So God will use it. God will uh, do something with that. But just understand that. The kingdom was divided. There was a northern kingdom. That didn't want to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the proper way. In the biblical way. In the way that God wanted to be worshipped. So they went north and they went and worshipped other gods, as if they were worshiping the God of Israel. In fact, the northern kingdom was called Israel, even though at times it was called Ephraim. And that designation is given to them many times in the book of Hosea. Their capital was centered around Samaria. What happens many, many years later? Samaria becomes a place that the Jews avoid Walking around it because of its compromise religiously. So Hosea's ministry was primarily to the northern kingdom of Israel, even though some of the things he said was also directed to the south. But it's interesting that the prophet's name, Hosea, that is how it is pronounced in Hebrew, Hosea, is the same name as the last king of the the northern kingdom of Israel, and that was Hosea. Hoshea. we'll talk about him in just a minute in 2 Kings 17. But it was also, the name Hoshea was also the, the original name of Joshua. It was the original name of Joshua. Take, for example, Numbers chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, of the tribe of Ephraim, Joshua was actually from the tribe of Ephraim, Hoshea, which is his name, uh, Original name, Oshea, the son of Nun. In verse 16, eight verses later, it says, These are the names of the men which Moses sent out to spy out the land. And Moses, notice what it says, and Moses called Oshea, the son of Nun, Yehoshua. Yehoshua. So now let's let's look at his name and what it means. We said last time that the name Hosea or Hosea or Oshea literally means salvation. It means salvation. But when you add Yehoah to it, or Yehoshua, what you are saying is, the Yah is God, the salvation. Yehoshua, God the salvation. God is salvation, in other words. That is the name given to the Messiah. Yeshua, the shorter derivative. Yeshua, same thing, God is salvation. And so Yehoshua was Joshua, transliterated with a J, because there's no J in the Hebrew language. So it's Yah, Yehoshua. That's why Jesus is called Yeshua. So, That's just a little lesson on on the name of of Hosea and of Jesus and of Joshua. Nothing is known of Hosea's family background except that he was, as we said last time, the son of Be'eri, which literally means well of God. And as already mentioned in verse one, the ministry of Hosea extended for a good number of decades in the eighth century BC through the reigns of the five kings mentioned. As we read, Uzziah, Ahaz, Hezekiah, uh, and, and those are the four kings. And then also is included Jeroboam, the son of Joash, which would be Jeroboam the second. And we'll talk about him in just a moment. So there were four kings of the southern kingdom of Judah mentioned, and one king of the of the northern kingdom, and that is King Jeroboam the second. Now, there were actually six kings. Now you need to follow along here. This is important. There were actually six kings that followed within the same time frame that followed Jeroboam the during the reigns of those four Judean kings, the four kings that are mentioned in verse one. And it may be that these six kings were omitted by the prophet Hosea simply to highlight and to point to the legitimacy of the line of David in Judah. These four kings, uh, for the most part, were good kings. All the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel were all bad kings. There was not one good king in the whole bunch. Now, God did use a couple of them at times. We'll talk a little bit about that through our study of the book of Hosea. But it was very rare and it was only primarily because God could use them when he did. And again, I'll talk about that later. Now, bear with me as I present this list of the six kings that followed Jeroboam II and the reason for mentioning them. First of all, Jeroboam II reigned 41 years And of course he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So now the first of the six kings that followed Jeroboam was a man named Zachariah. Z-A-C-H-A-R-I-A-H. Zachariah. And he only reigned six months. I'd like to have you turn to 2 Kings chapter 15. 2 Kings chapter 15. And what the writer of the, of the books of kings mentions to us are the coinciding kings of Judah and their time frame as to when these other kings reigned in Israel, in the northern kingdom. So you'll notice in verse eight, that's where we'll start here tonight, verse eight. In the 30 and eighth year of Azariah, king of Judah, did Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam reign over Israel in Samaria, six months now remember Jeroboam the second reigned 41 years here was one guy that only reigned six months and notice that it says and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord you're going to see that a lot in 2nd Kings chapter uh, 15 but he, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done he departed not from the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat that would be the first Jeroboam that actually started this whole process of getting Israel divided from the southern kingdom and of getting them to worship idols. That is why his name is mentioned every time that a new king pops up because they did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam. They continued on in the very same sins. Secondly, following Zechariah was a man named Shalom who had conspired against Zechariah, but only, he only reigned one month. It wasn't a safe thing to be a king in Israel in the northern kingdom. He reigned one month. Notice in 2 Kings 15, verse 10, the next verse, and Shalom, the son of Yabesh, conspired against him and smote him before the people. What did he do? He, uh, this uh, uh, Shalom conspired against Zechariah and he assassinated him. That's pretty much the best word to use. He assassinated him before the people and he slew him and and reigned in his stead. In verse 13, it tells us, Shalom the son of Yabish began to reign in the ninth and thirtieth year of Uzziah king of Judah And he reigned a full month in Samaria. That was it. One month. And you're also going to notice a pattern. None of these kings are from the line of Judah. So they have usurped the authority of leadership and royalty in the nation of Israel as a whole. None of them are from Judah. Some of them are just... uh, Members either of of the government or members of the military that just feel like they got to take over. So we're looking at a lot of stuff that you'd probably see on TV today. You know, some of these, uh, you know, game with Games of Thrones and all of this other stuff. Everybody's killing everybody, right? You don't have to go to HBO to watch this stuff. Just read the Bible. It's all around us. And then third, there was a guy named Manachem, a good Jewish name. Menachem, who killed Shalom in one month. And then he reigned for 10 years. Well, that was better than one month. 2 Kings 15, verse 14. For Menachem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and smote Shalom, the son of Yabesh, in Samaria and slew him and reigned in his stead. They didn't like somebody. Man, they were going to raise them up and assassinate him. Now, if you go down to verse 17, it tells us about his, uh, it gives us the details of his, uh, of his reign. It says, In the nine and thirtieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, began Menachem, the son of Gadi, to reign over Israel and reign ten years in Samaria. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. Not one of them got away from that sin. They all just stayed in it. They seethed in it. They boiled in it. And it just kept getting worse. Because the fourth king that is mentioned was a man named Pekahia, Pekahiah, who reigned two years. Second Kings 15, verses 23 and 24. In the fiftieth year of Azariah, look at look at Azariah. Fifty years, and he's still reigning. And uh, how many kings have we had now? About three. So, in the fiftieth year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, Pechah, the son of Menachem, began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned two years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Notice now the emphasis, Jeroboam made Israel to sin, made God's people to sin, just like the serpent made Adam and Eve to sin. And then the fifth king was a king that name was Pekah, very similar to the guy that he assassinated. Pekah conspired against and assassinated Pekahiah, and reigned 20 years. Verses 27-28. In the two and fiftieth year of Azariah king, man, Azariah keeps going on down there in the, in, in the southern kingdom of Judah. But not the kings in the, north, in, in the north. Pekah, the son of Remaliah began to reign over Israel in Samaria and reigned 20 years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel to sin. And now we get to the sixth who was Ho- Hoshea? interesting that his name is Salvation. But he's mentioned in chapter 17, so go to chapter 17, two pages over. Because he conspired against Pekah, and he assassinated Pekah, and he reigned nine years. 2 Kings 17, verses 1 and 2. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began Hoshea the son of Elah, To reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. But not as the kings of Israel that were before him. That's an interesting little change there. We're not going to talk about that tonight. But why is it? Why is it important to mention these kings and their conspiracies? Their court intrigue? To mention their transgressions and their sins? And the fact that they did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Well, that is because from Jeroboam's time, all of Israel's kings, all, not some, all of Israel's kings worshipped false gods. All of them worshipped false gods. Yes, they were allowed to be prosperous for a time. But they were also given the opportunity to heed the warnings of the prophets. And boy, did they have prophets. Jonah would be one to consider a voice that they would have heard much, many years before the 8th century. Actually, in the 9th century with... with uh, what was happening after the divided kingdom. Uh, But there was Amos in the north. There was Isaiah in the south. There was Micah both in the north and south. And then of course Hosea in the north. And they were given opportunity to heed the warning of the prophets and to repent of their wicked ways. Idolatry Primarily idolatry. But every sin is connected in some way. Idolatry. Oppression. They oppressed their own people. They made slaves of their own people. Abuses against the weak. Abuses against the poor. Abuses against the widow. Abuses against the orphan. And even their reliance on military strength. Rather than trusting in their God. Rather than trusting in his grace. And in his protection. They became self-sufficient. And they worshipped idols and they worshipped false gods. And this was the condition of the people in the time of Hosea the prophet. This is how great it was. It got worse in the northern kingdom, not better. A lot of people in the world today are saying, listen, because of our advances in, in, in science, because of our advances in, in technology, because of our advances in, in, in education and philosophies and all kinds of stuff, well, you know the only adva- the only advancements that coming from all of those things is as that advances, they're pushing aside the God who created the heavens and the earth. and they're pushing aside the Word of God. and they're saying, you know now, it's almost, become a, it's almost become a crime to be a Christian in the United States of America. And don't think that I'm exaggerating. And even if I th- even thought for a moment I was exaggerating a little bit, it will not be exaggeration in months or weeks or years to come. Just look at the news. Take a look at what's happening in our country today. Back at the beginning of this year, I was was mentioning about uh, the scientists and the university uh, researchers and all that have had so much to do with the advancement of artificial intelligence and how in artificial intelligence today, they're already becoming uh, themselves so bold to say Well, you know, we're the gods now. We are gods because we've created an intelligence that's greater than the the intelligence of mankind. And if anybody challenges me, I'll kill them. I'm not exaggerating about that. I mentioned that that night, we had that prophecy update. There was one The professor, looked like a professor with a little thin black tie and a suit on and yet he had that boldness to say, don't, don't mess with me. That's crazy stuff, isn't it? But that was, that was happening to some degree in Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, and eventually would happen even in the southern kingdom later on. So there's, the, there's the, the landscape. There is the spiritual landscape that Hosea had to deal with. So let's go to verse 2 now, because this, this is the beginning. It says, the beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms. In other words, go and marry a harlot. Go marry a prostitute. For the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. Now, there is nothing in the text here to suggest that Hosea the prophet was a man of wealth or position. He's just called Hosea the son of Be'eri. If anything he was certainly a man of the land called to his land called to his people to proclaim the message of God the message of the God of Israel to a people who had gone astray through rebellion and disobedience. None of the prophets of the scriptures would ever tell us that they had anything prominent in their life as the reason that God chose them. But what we do know implicitly is that Hosea made himself available to his God. Stop there for just a minute and just think. If God speaks to you and calls you to be a prophet for him in days like we have today, You can say one of two things. You can say yes, Lord, or you can say, "Let me pray about it." Now, I'm I'm kidding about that. Only from this standpoint, is is it insanity? Isn't it insanity to say, "Let me pray about it" to the God who you're supposed to pray to anyway? I mean, isn't it crazy to say, give me a second Lord, who are you gonna pray to if God says, I want you to be a prophet for me? Do you see the dilemma here? You see how irrational that seems? But how many people when God speaks to them and says, go do this, in effect they say no. We find one in the scriptures. His name was Shimon. Jesus called him Peter. Nay, Lord. <laughs> Everybody else looking around, he said no to Jesus. Well, I'd be, I'd be a little concerned myself. Don't say no to Jesus. Not so, Lord. You don't say no to the Lord. God calls you, you say, Yes, Lord. Hosea was available. He just what I'm the point I'm making is he's making himself available to God. Because God has spoken to him. We'll talk a little bit more deeper about this in a moment. He made himself available to his God and was obviously obedient to do what the Lord would instruct him to do. In this case, he was instructed to illustrate to the nation of Israel their unfaithfulness to their God by the very woman the Lord commands him to marry, which is a prostitute. And as the prophet contemplated the horrendous sins of his people, his heart had to be deeply moved. It, it was a question perhaps that every prophet asked. I know that Jeremiah could have asked that question. I know that Ezekiel could have asked that question. But it was a question that every prophet could have asked. The question is how could your people, Lord, a people who, who profess to have your word A people to whom the prophets Elijah and Elisha had just recently ministered with power and signs and miracles. A people given every advantage over all nations. How could they cringe and kowtow and pay homage to idolatry and sin? I think we can ask the same question about the way people live their lives who, who confess or, or maybe not confess, but profess Christianity or profess a belief in Christ. And yet their lives do not reflect it. Maybe they say that they know the word of the Lord, but they don't know. What's happening in churches today? I, I mention this too often. And I'll keep mentioning it until the Lord comes. But more and more churches are getting further and further away from God's word. And if they use it at all, they they use it to find things that they can take out of context so that they can promote what they're wanting people to believe. Things are moving today rapidly toward... A Christian universalism. And that, that's, that's an oxymoron from this standpoint. What universalism is, is that everyone comes to the same God. This is the reason why some churches today are, are uh, embracing Chrislam, trying to bring Christianity and Islam together because we're so compatible. If that were the case, why are they killing Christians in, 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 in Egypt? Why are they killing Christians in Syria? Why are they killing Christians in Iraq? Why are they killing Christians? Period. In Iran. We're so compatible. Part of their religion in, in Islam is, is, is to lie. Do you know that some churches have had, had, had imams come and, and they want to you know, open up their um, their pulpits to them so that they can come and speak a little bit about their, you know, the connection between Islam and Christianity? This was a very special study that one of our speakers at this last conference uh, that I was at in, in Wisconsin spoke on who was at one time a Muslim himself and now is a believer in Jesus Christ. And he says, you know what they do? They'll go into churches, they'll talk a little bit about some, you know, the Islamic Jesus and whatnot. And then the Imam will go up and he'll say a prayer and people, and and the pastor will say, oh, isn't that a beautiful, the way he prays and the, the rhythmic sound of this, you know? And he says, he says, I've been there. You know what he's doing? He's cursing the Christians. Nobody knows this. Nobody knows uh, uh, Arabic. But in Arabic, he's cursing the Christians. What's written all around the the, the Dome of the Rock inside, in Arabic, is curses to the Christian faith and the Jewish faith. But when you begin to embrace that kind of ecumenicalism or ecumenism, what happens is you begin to lay aside what is truth. So now the emerging church not only kind of slowly has walked away from the truths of the scriptures but now they're becoming uh, endorsers of no, no hell, no eternal judgment. This is Unitarian Universalism of today. No hell, no judgment. But what, it, what, what about what it says in the Bible about, the, about hell? Oh, listen, and by the way, one of the proponents of all of this was the writer of the book, The Shack, and it became a movie. We talked about that too. There was another speaker there that talked about the Universalism of The Shack. I hope and pray you don't like that. I, I hope and pray you saw it and said, you know what, this is not biblical. Personally, I hope and pray you didn't see it. No reason to pollute our minds with that kind of garbage. But the person who came and spoke about it is a personal friend of that that author, Paul Young. Knows him. They were friends until he went off on his universalism. Anyway, I know I kind of got into that. I've got a lot more to say. But this is what's happening in the church. and Right now it's time for the church to wake up, get back to the Word of God. And I mean to get back to the Word of God. And I'm going to say it, there there are certain biblical translations that I, I do not recommend because they have changed the Word of God to endorse certain pet theologies. I don't really stand to the fullness of the word of God when studied properly and right. You can criticize me for using the King James, but I don't care. I find that the manuscripts on which the King James Version uh, came about are reliable and have been for hundreds of years nothing wrong with that the reason I teach from it is because I I don't just pass over something I want to get deeper into what the text what the uh, original language says because we need to know what it says that's why we study the way we do I'm not here to make you feel comfy lovey-feely but I love you in the love of the Lord love each and every one of you because I want you to go to heaven I want you to spend eternity with Jesus. So I want to be faithful to that. But I'm not faithful if I if I wash this, water this down, whitewash it. That's not faithfulness. The word of God can hurt. But so does medicine. So does surgery. That's why the that's why the, the, the Word of God is a two edged sword. It cuts deep, but it also heals. So getting back to Hosea, what what an astonishing thing for the prophet to consider. A people that were blood relatives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and lived only a few days from the temple in Jerusalem, now wallowing and and stumbling in superstitions and indulging in every type of immorality and social injustice, now worshipping at the feet of graven images. And the thoughts of Isaiah or of Hosea could have been, surely they have sinned away any hope whatsoever of God's forgiveness and his glorious grace. How could the Lord God still love such a people? And if he did still love them, to what extent and to what lengths would his love now go? Where then is the line between God's mercy and his wrathful judgment? I wonder sometimes what the voice of God sounded like when speaking to his servants, the prophets. What did God's voice sound like? Was it always a still small voice like that heard by Elijah? That's what the scripture says. He heard a still small voice. Was it thunderous as it may have been in the, Sil- in the Sinai wilderness at the giving of the law? the voice of God at the baptism of Jesus. No matter at what volume, we need to remember that it was the very voice that spoke all things into existence. It was the voice that commanded light to shine in the darkness. It was the voice that communed with Adam in the garden. And it was the voice that called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. This voice now spoke to Hosea, but it wasn't the volume level or the tone of voice that concerned the prophet. No, it was the startling command given him to undertake. Hosea, go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms. And children of whoredoms. He was possibly a young man of marrying age, yet he was a God-fearing man. He was a a pure-minded man. He was a clean-living man, certainly because he was chosen to be a prophet. And he was told to marry a prostitute. I don't know, if I was Jose, I'd say, hello, is this God speaking? Or is it a demon? Could the one who was described by another prophet, Habakkuk, in Habakkuk one thirteen, where he calls him, thou art a thou art of pure eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devour the man that is more righteous than he could a message of that sort come from one who is described this way and is also called the holy one of Israel did I hear right Hosea said did I hear you right Let's take a closer look at what the Lord said. First, the Lord made no suggestion. God did not make a suggestion to his prophet. He gave him a command, go, go. Go's just a simple command, but it is the most profound command. Go. What's the first thing on your mind when God says go? Uh, me? (laughs) Uh, which way? Uh, now? That's the question. Now? He gave him a command. He gave the prophet a command to go and take a wife of whoredoms. That phrase, a wife of whoredoms, is quite significant to our understanding of this prophecy. Because I want you to compare this phrase with two others with similar plurals. A wife of whoredoms, not just whoredom, but of whoredoms. Plural. It's plural in the Hebrew, plural in the English. Compare this with two other plurals. Psalm 5 verse 6. (coughs) Excuse me. Psalm 5 verse 6. Uh, we don't understand the fullness of this verse we're not here to to look at it but just to take the plural thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing the lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man in the hebrew in the original hebrew in 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 the uh in the text it literally is A man of bloods, a man of bloods. Bloody and deceitful is in the Hebrew, literally plural, man of bloods. The second example I want you to see is is more familiar, Isaiah 53, verse 6, I'm sorry, Isaiah 53, verse 3. Isaiah 53, verse 3 where it says of Yeshua, because he is Messiah, it is speaking of Messiah. It says he is despised and rejected of men. And get this, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So, as I said in the the Psalm 5, verse 6 passage, the phrase bloody and deceitful man is literally a man of bloods, which refers to men given over to murder. And not just to murder, but serial murder. I mean, just killing and killing people. In the Isaiah passage, a passage again which speaks of Messiah, the phrase a man of sorrows reveals the Lord's complete life and ministry that they were overshadowed by sorrow. A man of sorrows. Well, let's face it. Here was a man who was all man, but he was all God. Nonetheless, he came to bear upon himself the sin of the world. And for that time, he was a man that was overshadowed by the sorrow of those that he came to save because of their sin. Therefore, the phrase a wife of whoredoms refers to a woman who is repeatedly guilty of sexual immorality. Repeatedly guilty of sexual immorality. Now we could speculate that she was possibly a temple priestess or a temple harlot who was kept by the despicably perverse priests of Baal and Ashtoreth to serve the lust of the Canaanite religion's followers? That didn't just happen then. It's happened down through history. She may have been a common call girl who made her living this way. The only sure thing is that Hosea never planned to marry a woman like that. Hosea never in himself planned to marry a woman like that. I don't think he would have. Do you think he would have? I don't think so. So the command had to come from the Lord to do that. But Hosea needed assurance, and he needed some assurance here, folks. Hosea needed some assurance. So that assurance was found in the very same verse. Look at the next part of the verse. He says, go marry a a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms for the land, here it is, for the land has committed great whoredom, departing from the Lord. The singular whoredom was done by a nation departing from God. So three times in one verse, the word whoredoms or whoredoms occurred. And it occurs at least 14 times in the whole book. That's a lot of times in a small book. By the way, that's one one a chapter because there's 14 chapters. Allowing the prophet then to compare the unfaithfulness of Israel to marital infidelity. This is what God has set up for him to do by marrying a wife of whoredom. And when speaking to Hosea, the Lord purposely compared idolatry to adultery. Now, some people would ask, why would the Lord command Hosea to do this to marry a prostitute? Why would he command him to do that? Interestingly enough, the reason is found in chapter 12 of Hosea, verse 10. Hosea 12, verse 10. Very simple. I have also spoken by the prophets, and I have multiplied visions, and here it is, and used similitudes, symbols, I have used signs or symbols, similitudes, by the ministry of the prophets. Did not Isaiah and Jeremiah and even Ezekiel do object lessons? God says, I want you to lay on your side for so many days, right? Jeremiah. Then when you're done on one side, go to the other side. He wasn't tanning. He was an object lesson. Go put this yoke on you. Object lesson. And so this was an object lesson for the people of Israel. When the people are looking at Hosea's wife, they are looking at themselves. And how unfaithful they are toward the Lord and prone to committing spiritual adultery. Now, this is not meant to be a spoiler alert, folks, okay? You know what a spoiler alert is? Somebody kind of giving away uh, information about a movie that's just come out. You know, this is not a spoiler alert because you can read the rest of this book. As a matter of fact, you can read all of Hosea tonight before you go to bed and, and you don't stay up late. So this is not a spoiler alert. But when you consider that Hosea's name means salvation and that he is, as God's representative, the one who reaches out to his unfaithful wife to restore her back to himself and to save her, then this is symbolic of what the Lord will do with unfaithful Israel to reach out to them and to restore them and to bring them back to himself and to save them. That is the object lesson, by going out and marrying a wife who is a harlot. One other point of importance. Last time I mentioned that the people were living in the time of of a temporary prosperity while the major heathen nations were regrouping somewhat. Assyria was kind of regrouping at that time, and even, even Babylon. Later on, you know, they come onto the picture. But when there are times like these, when things are going well, even better than well, that there's no need for God, at least in the minds of, 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 of people. Things are going well, we will need God. You kind of give token credit to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, but thank you for blessing me with such wonderful wisdom. Thank you for blessing me. Yeah, right, Like, like you're so hot. Instead of going to the true and living God to worship Him and to honor Him for His provision and His grace, they went after the gods of pleasure. They went after the gods of sexual desire and prosperity, money, power, and intellect. It's happening still today and sometimes even in the church. In some cases, people say, oh, yeah, I, love, I, I go to the Lord, I go to church, I, I give this much money, you know, I tithe this much, which you shouldn't tell anybody. You know, the left hand shouldn't tell the right hand what the right hand's doing, the right hand shouldn't, or shouldn't, I mean, the left hand shouldn't tell what the, the right hand, what the left hand's doing, and, and vice versa, you know. That's between you and the Lord. Some people boast about these things. But if you're going to stay in that kind of lifestyle, sometimes you have to say, Lord, I can't come to church because I've got to go make some more money. So I'll see you later. Do you see that, does that attitude exist even today? It does, it still does. And so in doing all of that that I just, that I just described, this, they were committing spiritual adultery against the God that married them at Sinai, and talking about Northern Kingdom of Israel. They're committing spiritual adultery against the God that married them at Sinai, and when they accepted his covenant, there was an acceptance of a covenant. Turn to Exodus 19. I only have a couple of minutes, but I'm gonna finish my study, okay? So uh, just, just understand that uh, you can ask the Lord to take back the hands of time for just a few minutes. Just a few, and then, you know, it will be okay. Exodus 19, verses three through eight. You're familiar with this passage. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, look at that, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. If all the earth is mine, as God says, and he loves his people, he's going to bless his people. Don't you think all the earth is ours because it's his? It's going to be our inheritance because he's our father and we're his, his, his children. So what do we have to worry about? So He says, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, which means just what it says. You'll be a kingdom of priests, kings and priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord had commanded him. Listen, and all the people answered together. And listen what they said they said all that the Lord has spoken we will do. That's quite a pledge. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. I mean come on. We were given ten commandments. We can count those on our hands. And if anybody ever chops off our hands, we can count them on our feet and our toes. We can do ten. Folks, they couldn't do one in the garden. How are we going to do ten by ourselves without God's help? And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So now some people believe that, you know, going back to Hosea and his wife, that the woman may not have been a prostitute when Hosea married her, but later then became a prostitute. But it seems more likely that she was a prostitute when he married her because that would best symbolize Israel's relationship to the Lord throughout most, of their, throughout most of their existence. Because he called Israel in their idolatry. You'll see that in just a moment. He called Israel in their idolatry. Don't forget that the Lord grieved over them when they forsook him for the false gods of the land of Canaan. And before Moses died, and before Joshua, his successor, died, idolatry was still a dilemma for Israel. Two more, two more passages, I think. One, two, yeah, two, two more passages. Deuteronomy 31, verses 14 through 16. Now, that doesn't seem like a lot. Three verses. They're really long verses. Okay, so here we go. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thy days approach that thou must die. Call Joshua. Joshua. And present yourselves in the tabernacle of the congregation, that I may give him a charge. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of the congregation. That was just one verse. Verse 15. And the Lord appeared in the tabernacle in a pillar of a cloud, and the pillar of the cloud stood over the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up, and go a whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whither they go to be among them, and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. He's telling them this is what they're going to do. The very same people who said, All that the Lord has commanded, we will do. But let's, let's, let's close with what Joshua says Joshua 24 y'all are familiar with this passage one of my favorite passages of scripture but i want you to listen read between the lines a little bit (laughs) verse 14 joshua 24 now joshua is getting close to his death and he says now therefore fear the lord in other words worship the lord serve the lord honor the lord respect the lord Bow to the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And notice the next phrase and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. The father served, and He says, put them away. What is He telling them? What are you doing with those idols? Serve the Lord. That's when he says, and if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord. Wow, what a statement. If it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom ye will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So here's your homework. Read to the end of Joshua 24 from here. You can do that even now. or Well, not now because I'm going to close in prayer. You can read it right after service is over if you want to stay and do that. Or just read it tonight. But read the rest of Joshua 24. Some people are acting as if it's evil to serve the Lord today. The prophet Isaiah said that we are to be aware of a time when man will be saying that that which is good is bad and that which is bad is good. Well, we're living in those days and times today What is evil is good. What is good is evil. But we know better. If we know and love God's word. So with that in mind. We will press on a little bit. More next time. In Hosea. My my plan really is to finish chapter one next week. Okay so we're going to do that. But uh, you can read. And I would encourage you and challenge you to do this, Uh, 14 chapters, uh, every day that you get a chance, an opportunity, read the book of Hosea again, throughout our time and our study of it. Read it prayerfully. Ask God to give you wisdom as we study these verses together. I know some Bible teachers that uh, really love the Lord and love the the Word that before they even begin to teach a passage of Scripture, they'll read it, a chapter, maybe a whole book, 50 times before they'll get to teaching it. Because the more you read it, the more God gives wisdom. We oftentimes say, Well, I read the Word and I, I sometimes don't get it. Well, that's because you stop reading because you don't get it, and because you're not praying. And asking God to give you wisdom. I want you to know that I'm not the only teacher in this room here. The main teacher is the Holy Spirit. I hope I've listened to him to teach you what he's given me to give you so that you can keep digging and you can keep learning and you can keep growing. So let's, let's, let's approach this book and our study in it in that, in that manner, in that respect.